Father, these words are so true. Your grace is amazing. We worship you. We worship you because of the cross and the resurrection. We worship you with song and the gifts that we give, and we worship you in engaging your word. And I pray that this morning, my word, the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. You take my weak words and combine them with your strong, authoritative word and your spirit and allow us to hear what you have to say to us this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. I'm so glad to be here with you guys, sadly for the circumstances, but we'll be praying for Pastor Al, and hopefully we'll see him come through this and, and back on the platform and, and serving you with all the gusto that uh, God gives him. I was thinking about what I was going to uh, talk about this morning. There's so much. Uh, but I'm going to have you turn to the Book of Ruth. Book of Ruth, I know, strange. Sort of, sort of an odd book to, to jump into with such a crazy world that we're living in right now with the things that we see in the news in Ukraine and the fears that we have and the inflation and all the things that are going on and Ruth of all things, right? Doesn't seem like the book you'd turn to. I'd, I'd, I'd uh, definitely differ with that. But before that, I want to just share with you a little bit about uh, me via my high school days years and years ago. Uh, the term that I would probably use to epitomize my high school days more than any other, I can sum up in about three words. And that phrase, those, that three-word phrase, was first uttered my sophomore year in high school many years ago. We were playing dodgeball back when we actually used rubber balls and not like balloons or something like that. And um, somehow I was the last person left on my team. And on the other team, there were five guys on the other team. And miraculously, I dare say masterfully, in a nail-biter that will go down in high school dodgeball lore, I was able to duck, dodge, dip, and catch and throw and knock out all five of my opponents and, and win this monumental victory. My buddies Butch Davis and Mark Davis picked me up, put me on their shoulders. Back then I was only 120 pounds. I know, I know. That's a long time ago. Anyway, I was glorying in this monumental victory when all of a sudden we were passing by. Penny Gabriel was over here, and I heard her go, sheesh, this is a 10th grade gym class dodgeball game. It's not very epic. Not very epic. Yeah, that kind of epitomized high school for me. Um, or there were the grand plans I had for the Sadie Hawkins dance. You guys know what Sadie Hawkins dances are, right? Right? How many of you know what I'm talking about? Where the, the girl asked the guy. Now, back in our high school days, we called it the twerp dance. Twerp was an acronym, the woman is requested to pay, but it was the Sadie Hawkins dance, right? And and so our high school is going to have this, and uh, uh, this is back in 1984, back when, I know I just dated myself, back when Saturday Night Live was actually funny, right? And there was a character on Saturday Night Live, it was Eddie Murphy doing uh, Gumby, right? But he had a cigar and he was real obnoxious, and it was it was uh, he was sort of funny about that, Um so I got it in my head for, for Twerp Day. We had a whole spirit week, right, where you dressed up different ways, like spirit day where you had the school colors on and some other day and Hawaiian day. And, and so Twerp Day was when it was Friday, the day before Twerp Dance. 
And that's when everybody dressed like imbeciles, right? It was fun. It was silly. It was goofy. And I had this, this epic plan. So I went to the Goodwill store. I got a ski jacket and old ski pants and mittens. I spray painted them green. I got this huge cardboard box. I cut the Gumby head wedge in the top of the box. I had a hole for my face. I had a hole for my arms. I spray painted that thing green. I actually got a cigar to complete the look. And, uh, and just in case it got warm, man, I was all in. So what I did was, I can't believe I'm bragging about this. I actually made my own pants out of black satin with yellow fringes going down the legs and a shiny sleeveless shirt. Uh, is an homage to David Lee Roth, the lead singer from Van Halen, the only singer from Van Halen, as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, so I was all in with this epic costume, ready for twerp day, and it was going to be awesome, right? And I was sure that me showing up in this costume would then, you know, encourage many of the ladies to ask me to twerp dance, and it was going to be great. Thursday, however, we had a snow day. And I was fearful that everybody forgot, because of the snow day interruption, that people would forget that it was going to be twerp day the next day. So I called 30 of my friends to make sure, are you guys dressing up? You remember it's twerp day? Oh, yeah, it's twerp day. Everybody remembers it's twerp day. Okay, great, because I don't want to come to the school looking like a moron. And so everybody was in, you know. So that morning, we we had school. I donned my idiotic Gumby costume figured out how to wedge myself into my mom's Dodge Omni uh, with a cardboard box still on myself, and we got to Cuyahoga Falls High School. And, uh, man, I was all in. It was going to be epic. Now, the high school I attended, about 2,000 students, okay? So even if 90% of the student body forgot that it was twerp day, right, there'd still be, if I'm doing my math correctly, a good 200 people dressed in costumes, right? Right? Yeah. And you'd be wrong. There were six of us. And not coincidentally, we all had lunch together at the same table because we look like morons. Six. I mean, each period was a, uh, a heaping plate of humility dished out to me along with several side dishes of sarcasm as I wedge myself in those rather comfortable desks in school, and people would say, "I can't see the board over Dave's Gumby-like head," you know, and it was it was just horrible. And and at the conclusion of it, I again repeat those three monumental words: not very epic. But while it's true that my high school days were not very epic, they were more formative then perhaps I gave them credit. I found my voice as a thinker in my problems in democracy class. We had like this three-way debate between the capitalists and the communists and the, and the socialists, and I was in this debate, and suddenly I found out, man, I could do this. I'm a pretty good debater, you know? And I found my voice. I learned from my mistakes. I made a lot of mistakes in high school. I continued to make them. But I started learning from them. I started growing from them. I actually started growing up. Um, I learned to become more comfortable in my own skin back in those high school days. I was able to say, I don't really care what you think. I'm, this is who I am, and I'm good with it. I'm good with it. Those years were not very epic, but they were subtly deeper than I had at first realized. And I think we tend to overestimate the value of things that seem to be epic to us 
And we undervalue those events and those stories and those moments in life that appear to be not very epic, but have a deeper and more powerful effect on us in the long run if we are paying attention. I think that's a perfect description for the book of Ruth. And if you haven't yet turned to the book of Ruth, that was your cue to turn to the book of Ruth. Right before 1 Samuel, right after the book of Judges, Ruth, not very epic, but deeper and more profound than what meets the eye. Ruth's only four chapters long. It's not a big book. It's not like Isaiah, 66 chapters. There's no miracles in the book of Ruth. There's no uh, mountaintop moments with God, all right? Compared to the book of, say, uh, Exodus or Daniel or the Gospel of John or the book of Revelation, right? Ruth gets easily overlooked. And if we overlook Ruth because it's not very epic, we will miss one of the most powerful examples of saving faith, and one of the clearest pictures of God's overarching plan in the midst of the current pain and anguish and confusion that we're in. She was in it too. This is why I think this is a perfect book for us. So let me give you a little interview, uh, interview overview. I've been on the shelf for a couple months, okay, uh, of the book of Ruth. So the spiritual, theological, and personal value of the story of Ruth, okay, Quick review, some of the assets that the book of Ruth will provide if we're patient and attentive, okay? First of all, in the story of Ruth, uh, I think there should be a slide up there. Uh, We are uh, trying to see the subtler movements of God in the midst of hardships. We are trained to see the subtler movements of God in the midst of hardships. The first thing I'd point out about Ruth is that there are only two places in the entire book, in which the narrator attributes specifically something happening because God directly got involved, okay? The first one is this. God removes the famine from the land of Judah. Okay, we see that in Ruth 1.6. And we see that the narrator says that God enables Ruth to conceive, because she hadn't been able to conceive for 10 years, and give birth to a son. We see that in chapter 4, verse 13. But that's it. That's it. So we're called to look more closely at his subtle movements. For many of us, we need to see God intervene in some tangible, unmistakable, you know, epic way for us to see his hand. But more often than not, God works subtly. And this book will help us, if we let it, help us train ourselves to look more deeply at the movements of God, especially in times of hardship. Here's another asset I think about Ruth, and that is in the story of Ruth, we see that the smaller moments of grace can have an unexpectedly powerful impact. In the smaller moments of grace, they can have an unexpectedly powerful impact. Now, the world in which Ruth lived was the world of societal breakdown and chaos. Uh, She lived during the days that the judges governed. We might say, yeah, and we lived through COVID and and what currently we're living in Ukraine world and all this other stuff, right? What were those days like? Well, the book of Judges starts with solid leaders. I mean, if you start with Othniel, he was a pretty good judge. But each one gets progressively worse until we get to Samson, who was the poster child for underachievement. I mean, this guy should have been epic. Talk about strong. Talk about, you know, standing out. And yet... 
for all of his famous uh, strength, right? His last moments were chained between two pillars in the temple dedicated to the god Dagon. His eyes were gouged out, and he was ending a Philistine party by pulling the pillars down on everybody, including himself. Not very epic, honestly. But more telling is how the book of Judges actually ends with a commentary on their world, right? And if you look at it, I think we have it in Judges chapter uh, 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes, which is a recipe for disaster, as I'm sure you can figure out. The book of Ruth itself finds itself situated between the chaotic times described in the book of Judges and the tumultuous transition to a monarchy that we see in the books of Samuel. This short, four-chapter book about two insignificant widows, an Israelite woman and a Moabite daughter-in-law, who enter the land of Judah destitute, and Ruth, Ruth ends up getting married to uh, Naomi's kinsman redeemer, that serves, that moment, that insignificant moment serves as the bridge between these two epic moments in salvation history. Small little moments can be much bigger than we realize. So why does this not very epic story of all stories provide the bridge in God's history of redemption? Why does God draw such a quiet, hardly earth-shaking little episode while Israel is in chaos? I think the message here is this. In a world that needs so much fixing, it's helpful to see that God doesn't expect us to fix the whole world. God expects us to offer his grace in the small sections of his story, just in the pages where we find ourselves. And that's all he expects. And he'll do big things with that. One more thing about the book of Ruth. All right. In the story of Ruth, we see yet another example of God's redemptive intentions to create an all-encompassing family. So in the book of Ruth, we actually have parallel stories on the human level. We have, obviously, the namesake of this book, uh, Ruth, right, the Moabitess, but also the person that the book begins and ends with, and that would be her mother-in-law, Naomi. Right? We see it in chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and his two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. And then at the end of the book, so Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Oh, spoiler alert, in case you never read it. Uh, when he made love to her, the, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, not Ruth, Naomi. Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. In this story, we have Ruth's awe-inspiring faith, coupled with her undying commitment to Naomi. And yet, we also have an example of God's constant solution to brokenness between two different people groups. And the solution is, I'll create a new family, grounded not in ethnicity, or anything else other than allegiance to him himself. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, 
A severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, which, by the way, was never the, the uh, order of the day when there was a famine. You weren't supposed to leave the land. You were supposed to pray <laughs> if you're reading the Torah. Uh, but that's what he did. Taking his wife and his two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Machlon and Kilion, and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. Actually, it doesn't say they settled there. That would be interesting, but it says, and there they were. Almost like they had no plan. I mean, if they settled there or they sojourned there, I mean, at least it was a plan. This was just, and there they were. That's what the Hebrew says. And kind of like they just showed up. Then Elimelech died. And Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One woman, uh, the, one married a woman named Orpah, and the other uh, woman named uh, the other a woman named Ruth. But about ten years later, both Machlon and Kilion died. This left Naomi alone, without her two sons, or her husband. Ian Duguid writes, I think life, like so many. They now seem simply to be drifting through life without any grand plan. They left the, the, uh, the land, and then they showed up, and boom, that was it for them. And they were just doing their thing. The first five verses are a summary to quickly set the stage for the following events. Naomi sets steps to center stage, right? In a few short verses, she was forced to leave home. Her husband dies. Her sons married for 10 years, but obviously infertile, then die. So Naomi is not just a widow. She's an old, childless, grandchildless, stranger in a strange land widow, saddled with two widowed Moabite daughters-in-law. In that world, that was it. You're done. Except chapter 6. Then Naomi heard in Moab, that Yahweh had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab to return to her, to her homeland. With her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living, and they took to the road that would lead them back to Judah. But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back to your mother's homes. May Yahweh reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May Yahweh bless you with the security of another marriage. And she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. Um, they, they did have a good relationship. No, they said, we want to go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? Oh, my daughters, return to your parents' home, for I'm too old to marry again. And even if it were possible, and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me than for you, because Yahweh himself has raised his fist against me. And again they wept together, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. I think uh, this is one of the most powerful moments, I think, in the scriptures. And it's so easy to just read right past it. 
While Naomi has invoked the name of her God when blessing and releasing her daughters-in-law, where her heart is revealed is actually in verse 13. That's Frederick Bush's translation. For my life is much too bitter for you to share, for Yahweh has stretched out his hand against me. Now, our narrator, I think we have a slide here, has not implicated God as the one who started the famine. The narrator has not implicated God in the death of Naomi's husband. God, the narrator has not implicated God in the death of Naomi's sons. The narrator has not implicated God in the infertility issue of Naomi's daughters-in-law. But Naomi has. And if you don't believe me, look at what she says when she finally arrives home again. Look at verse 19. So the two of them continued on their journey. When they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Is it really Naomi, the women asked? Naomi means pleasant, by the way. Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant, she responded. Instead, call me Mara, which is Hebrew for bitter. For the Almighty has made life very bitter, Mara, for me. I went away full. But Yahweh has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when Yahweh has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? Naomi just goes off. I mean, the, the I, the Hebrew emphatic, the ani, it's not just I, I, even I left full. And Yahweh brought me back empty. I wonder when Ruth hears this, if she, her feelings are hurt. Like, what do you mean? Empty, I'm, I'm here, aren't I? Right? But Naomi's bitterness has gotten so pervasive that she's blinded by it. In fact, we're warned to be on guard through the story of blind bitterness. Chapter 1 is guiding us along the path of Naomi's bitterness, and there's some things that we need to see here. We see the hardship she's forced to endure. But then we also see her withdrawing from others, trying to send away the only two remaining family members. She begins to suggest that God has cursed her and warns her daughters-in-law that to join her in her uh, join her is to fall under the same curse from God. Even though our narrators never suggest that God cursed Naomi, right? She begins to miss moments of grace, like the the opportunity to return to Judah where there's food again, or her daughters-in-law willing to return uh, join her on a return trip home. She dismisses the blessing of Ruth's total commitment to her. And finally, she accuses God of all her misery and her emptiness. The warning Ruth offers to all of us is this. We need to understand the difference between anger and bitterness. Sure, it's up there somewhere. Naomi is not merely angry. She's bitter. There's a difference. Anger is often a reaction, right? An emotion that's evoked by a hurt or an offense, right? Bitterness is a slow smoldering anger that we refuse to let go, where the embers are always underneath, growing hotter and hotter. Think of anger and bitterness like in terms of those two pesky insects during the summer, right? The mosquito and the tick. Anger is like a mosquito, right? Mosquitoes come along, they find you, they bite you, slap them. You know, maybe you get them, maybe you don't, but they leave. They don't hang out. But bitterness is like a tick. 
A tick finds a spot and it burrows in and it stays there. If you have any outdoor dogs, you probably had the joy of trying to remove a tick. It's no fun. That's bitterness. We also need to understand how bitterness burrows into our souls. If we understand that's what it's like, then we need to understand how it happens. And we see it here in the book of Ruth. It's not actually a very epic insight on my part, but I think it's deeply important to know because this happens to way too many of us and way too often. Here's how bitterness works. We experience a hurt or an offense that came from, or we think came from, another person. Instead of starting with forgiveness, we replay the hurt over again in our mind. Right? Ever have those car drives where you're alone and you have the imaginary argument with the person you're mad at? None of you? Come on, seriously. I do. Sorry. We then replay it by retelling it to others. With each replay, we build new layers of resentment. With each replay, we reinforce our justification for not forgiving. With each replay, we blind ourselves to our own accountability and our own need for forgiveness. That's how bitterness burrows in. My word, these last couple of years in our country have created story after story after story of sin and anger. And then when bitterness starts burrowing in, you seen that? I have. I think God's church could really use a story like the not very epic story of Ruth right about now to begin the healing process. We also need to understand how to be free from bitterness. It's one thing to know how it works. It's another thing to learn how to be free from it. And that too will require not a very epic application, not something that you go, wow, I never thought of that before, but something we need to be reminded of, right? We need to pray for God's help. If you think you're going to do it on your own steam, forget about it. You've been equipped with the Spirit of God, if you're a follower of Jesus, to inquire of God, ask of God, and have Him help you what you can't do. We need to pray for God's help. We need to acknowledge our sin in this process. Every one of them, even if it's 10% you and 90% somebody else, you still have 10% that you have to lay claim to. We need to apply the gospel and grace of God to our bitter spirit. And I do emphasize that word, apply the gospel. I think we only think of the gospel as eternal fire insurance policies instead of this new creation thing, this thing that makes us a different person if we apply it constantly to our lives. And we need to do that. We need, like all sins, to focus on the opposing virtues that will help us pull us away from these sins. I mean, the fruit of the Spirit, if you think about it, those are virtues. And what do you do? You cultivate virtues. And if you know what your sins are, then you cultivate the virtues that oppose those sins through the work of the Spirit. We need to look for the moments in which God is trying to draw us back to Him. And there are those moments if you're looking. Sometimes they're not very epic. Sometimes they're subtle, but if you're looking, that'll draw you back too. That brings me to my third point in a very epic moment in the book of Ruth. Indeed, one of the most epic declarations in the Bible, yes, in the book of Ruth, and that is this. Uh, Naomi has persuaded one of her daughters-in-law to head back to Moab, right? She tried to convince both of them. Only one of them took her up on that. Uh, Orpah, or I like to call her Oprah, Actually, Oprah got the name from 
Orpah. And they, they just misspelled the name on her, on her birth certificate, apparently. But Oprah left to go start her own TV show, magazine, healthcare products, etc. Uh, but not Ruth. No, no, no. Here's what it says about Ruth, starting in verse 14 again. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. Wow. I don't know if we really understand just how powerful a phrase that is. There are only two oaths that are directly attributed to characters in the narrative of the Bible in which that person invokes the name of Yahweh. Only two. One of them is Jonathan, Saul's son, when he invokes the Lord's name in 1 Samuel 20, verse 13. And the other is in Ruth 1.17. The oath, by the way, is a beautiful piece of literary artistry, a perfectly fashioned chiasm. If you look at it, uh, you have... Uh, don't pressure me to abandon you or turn from you, A, and then A prime. Thus may Yahweh do to me and worse if even death separates me from you. So A and A, right? B, wherever you go, I go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. B prime. Wherever you die, I die, and there I shall be buried. And right there in the middle, your people, my people. Literally in the Hebrew, it just says, your people, my people. Your God, my God. And there it is, right in the center. If you look at the center of this declaration by Ruth, you will note that this is, in fact, a declaration of her conversion. She may not say it like we would say it, but that's her declaration of conversion. She swears allegiance not only to Naomi, but to Naomi's people and to Naomi's God. If, if Naomi's bitterness is ever to be uprooted, she would do well to see this moment of grace as God's love is drawing her back to him by putting this kind of person in her life. Which brings me to this. We're inspired to deeper levels of grace through the story of promise-bound love and commitment. We're inspired to deeper levels of grace through the story of promise-bound love and commitment. So what Ruth says literally leaves Naomi speechless. I mean, 118, right? When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. This may be one of the most underrated, most epic demonstrations of faith in the Bible. I want you to think about that for a second. Unlike some of the other heroes of the faith, like Abraham, or Moses, or King David, or, or Peter, or Paul, uh, Ruth never received a direct word from God. Ruth never walked by promises given to her by God. Ruth walked away from the possibilities of remarriage and a new life in Moab, where it would have been safe. Ruth has been made to understand that Naomi's God is in the process of judging Naomi, and that Ruth's allegiance makes her susceptible too. I mean, at the minimum, the God that Ruth has sworn allegiance to has been silent as of late, and Ruth is going to a people whose law includes an exclusion of Moabites from the assembly, Deuteronomy 23.3. 3. 
And despite all of that, she commits without loopholes, without caveats, without conditions, nothing. She says, I am all in. By the way, what a wonderful demonstration of what salvation really is, rather than simply praying a prayer and then moseying on in life as though it didn't matter. There's a Hebrew word that has baffled translators for quite some time because it defies any one-word equivalent. In fact, when the Revised Standard Version translators were translating their Bible, they left 250 blanks wherever this word showed up. So after they were done translating, they'd go back and try to figure out how to translate this one particular word. It's the word chesed. you got to say it like a Hebrew. Chesed. I want everybody to say it you know, with the right? Chesed. Say it. Chesed. Right. You're disgusting. You're spitting all over the place. Anyway, um, it shows up in key moments in Ruth 1.8. It shows up as kindness, 2.20, 3.10. It means, um, it means love, but there's a Hebrew word for love, ahav. But it's, so it's more than love. Um, it means like a covenant-anchored love, a covenant-anchored commitment. Uh, sometimes it's translated kindness. Sometimes it's translated mercy. I've translated it promise-bound love because I think that uh, kind of gets more the gist, but even that translation fails, Right. It's, it's the kind of love that epitomizes God's core, part of a description of God's character. You know, when he passes by Moses in the cleft of the rock, he talks about, we don't really see what his back was, right? We only hear the words that are uttered, right? And those words are, if we have it on the screen, Lord passed by him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, the mer- God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in chesed, which our translators here translate steadfast love, chesed va'emet, um, promise-bound love and faithfulness. So finally, after years of reading all these Hebrew lexicons and commentators and thinking about this word and how it actually describes not only God's love for us, but the kind of saving faith commitment that we're called toward towards God. And I finally, finally, finally found an adequate, nay, and epic definition in the not very epic book of Ruth. You want to hear what the definition of chesed really is? Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, may it be it ever so severely, if even death separates you from me uh, to the death, promise bound, curse me if I break this promise, total commitment that tosses aside all other commitments that might distract. That's the definition of chesed. There is no cheap grace in this declaration. There's no virtue signaling, no faddish momentary solidarity. It's the kind of commitment that we aspire to with God and with others, with our neighbor. It's the kind of peacemaking intentionality that Christ followers aspire to when seeking direction for how to be a redemptive agent in this world filled with tensions and suffering and distrust and chaos. It's the kind of commitment we call people to in their allegiance to Jesus and nothing short of that. It's the kind of promise by love that can inspire us out of our bitterness 
and into a deeper, more formative relationship with God. Let me stop here with the last verse of chapter 1 in the book of Ruth. Verse 22. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law Ruth, the young Moabite woman. They arrived in Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. Period. <laughs> the barley harvest is beginning. Great. I like barley. I like barley soup. Naomi, bitter, husbandless, childless, wondering if God has cursed her, accompanied by Ruth, also a widow, widow and now a foreigner, yet loyal, committed, determined. And the narrator leaves us with, and it was the beginning of the barley harvest. Kind of hoping for something a little more substantial, right? Something a little more epic than that. And yet, this is a book that constantly wants to train us to look at the subtle things, the small moments, the quiet moments of grace. We started the chapter with famine and departure. We closed the chapter with return and harvest and hints of the subtler movements of the God which will form a whole new family from two different races and provide redemption and the seeds of revival Kind of sounds like the promise-bound love that we see in the gospel. You want epic? Give me not very epic, but deep, formative, and life-changing every day of the week. Let's pray. Father, I know I have a tendency to throw a lot at people, and I pray there's the opportunity to hear what you had to say, that I didn't confuse too much. But I trust your word, because it's true, and I trust that your spirit can find in each person, whether they're here in the room or online, exactly where you want your word to go in their soul, to do work to do formation, to do healing. God, maybe there's somebody in this room or online that's struggling with bitterness and they needed to hear this. Maybe there's somebody in this room that just needed to see that you work in small ways that aren't expected and do more than we think. Maybe there's someone who just needed a word of encouragement and they got it, or a nudge, or a, or a prompt Maybe someone needs to go seek someone out and offer or ask for forgiveness. Whatever you want to do, God, I pray that you take your word and pinpoint it exactly where you want it to go and bring glory to yourself. I pray this in the name of Jesus, our great high king, our savior, and the best friend we could ever have. And all of God's people prayed.